Over the next month, members of fellowship will have the opportunity to nominate new elders to the elder board. In our church governance structure, the elder board is made up of godly men who make critical and significant decisions on behalf of our body. We are not a church with elders. We are a church led by elders. The nomination and recognition process are very important to the health of our church family. Here is what we are asking members of fellowship to do. First, please pray for the elder nomination process and discern whether you should nominate someone to the office of elder. Second, if you do have a nomination, please visit fellowshipnwa.org forward slash elder nomination and complete the online form. Please read the accompanying document entitled Qualifications of an Elder before making your nomination. If you prefer a paper nomination form, you may pick up one at the information desk in the worship center foyer at each campus. The nomination form will be attached to the qualifications of an elder document. Please mail paper nominations to the church office on the Rogers campus to the attention of the elders. The deadline for making a nomination is December 11. Please pray for your elders as we initiate the process of recognizing new elders. Finally, we thank Scott Thompson and Roger Hill for their years of faithful service as elders. They have represented you and the Lord well during their tenure. When you see them, please thank these gentlemen for their faithful service. On another note, a few of the buildings on our Rogers campus need some attention. The Family Center was completed in 1991. The Worship Center and Foyer were completed in 1999. That's a quarter of a century. The elders have approved moving forward with much needed improvements to those buildings. The cost is estimated to be approximately $4.5 million. We don't want to go into debt for this project and we have proven on initiatives of much larger scale that we can get this done if all our congregations work together. My wife Denise and I will be setting up monthly recurring gifts to do our part and I hope you will too. No gift is too large or too small. And remember, it's not about equal giving, but equal sacrifice. On the giving page of our website, you will find capital improvements. You can make a contribution there or set up recurring gifts. We already have $1.3 million in donations, so we are well on our way. God continues to do great things through Fellowship Bible Church of Northwest Arkansas. Thank you for playing an active role in this great ministry. God bless you, everyone. Welcome. Happy Sunday to you. I love Psalm 95, which says, Oh, come, let us make a joyful noise to the Lord, the rock of our salvation. And what a privilege it is to gather together. So welcome this morning. My name is Peter Hammond, and I'm part of the community pastoral team. Yeah, my name's Danny Sullivan, and I'm on the elementary ministry team. And we just have a couple announcements for you. I just moved about two months ago from Colorado, where the other day we got six, six inches of snow, and so having 60, 70 degree weather uh, for me is summertime. And uh, very, like one of the announcements that we have is that Christmas is coming soon. And to get your Operation Christmas boxes in uh, by next Sunday, 
which is new to me because it seems like we should still be uh, swimming around. But anyhow, Christmas is coming. Get those boxes in. The other announcement that we have is that our, um, that, that our um, global partners that are working overseas, um, this can be a pretty challenging time for them as they are away from family and friends and celebrating the holidays, celebrating Christmas. And one thing that we can do as a church body to encourage them is to write notes of encouragement, letting them know that we're supporting them, that we're there for them, that we're praying for them. You can find out more information on how to engage with this on our app or on our website. Yeah, one of the global workers um, that we support, uh, we're about to watch a video and hear their story. I want to intro that video with a story, though. Uh, in 2016, in April, Hunter House invited me to the Bentonville Men's Retreat. Daniel was there. We floated the buffalo together. Um, but I had moved up to Arkansas from Florida less than a year before that, and so I didn't, I didn't know anybody. And one of the first guys that I met at the retreat was Bobby Stottle. Um, and after that weekend, I asked Bobby if we could meet up on a regular basis because I wanted to learn how to love and follow Jesus like he did. And a few weeks after we had been meeting up together, he told me that Jesus had called him and his family to make disciples in a faraway place, unreached by the gospel. He didn't know what exactly that was going to look like or what that would even mean for his family, but he did know that obedience to Jesus is a mark of a true disciple of Jesus. And as uh, we'll hear in this uh, video in a second, the Stottles' life was, their life was changed through small group discipleship. And the Lord used that to form them into spiritual leaders and to form them into maturing disciples of Jesus. And I think it's really neat that uh, we've been learning about that in Philippians. In week six, Doug Rains talked to us about uh, what a spiritual leader is. He defined it for us. And then in week eight, Mark Schatzman talked about how a mature Christian is a maturing Christian. Uh, but I think the, the main the main thing about the Stottles story and the video we're about to watch is really it's an invitation to all of us to ask ourselves, what, what's our next step in obedience to discipleship to Jesus? Let's watch this. You know, I think we all feel unequipped to be able to be disciple makers. Like we all feel like we can't, we're not enough. Who am I to tell someone else, right? Um, but that's why I think the, you know, Matthew 28 passage, 16 through 20 is just basically, it's really important because it says, we're not alone in this. The, the, the Jesus we follow has been given all authority on heaven and earth, right? And that he is with us all the time as we go and make disciples and as we teach other people to um, obey in his name. You know, the name of God, the Father, and the Holy Spirit. As believers, we get to be a part of a vision, the only one vision in the whole world that we know will come to be. Revelation 5.9, Revelation 7.9, every tribe, tongue, and nation will be around his throne, and we get to be a part of that. Um, no one else can say that except believers in Christ. We know that's going to be reality, and we get to be a part of it. And there are so many people, so many tongues, tribes, and nations that aren't a part of it yet. That's what keeps us going. <laughs> I mean, to be honest, we, we came to fellowship as we weren't disciples of Christ. We, we weren't truly followers of who Jesus was. And um, 
through being in small groups, you know, whether it was be with men on men or uh, women with women or as families, the small group process helped us to become discipled, right? And that brought us to a true faith in who Jesus is. And so I think um, fellowship was that greenhouse that helped us to understand, hey, here's what, we're, here's what it's going to take to be fertile and to grow and to be able to develop. And then we were able to experiment, right? We learned how the different ways in which we were going to, how can we be disciples? You know, what's it going to look like in different contexts, in different places um, for us to be able to talk about who Jesus is as we were going, right? And um, we, we really camp on Deuteronomy 6 a lot. Um, that we want to love God with everything we are and we want to serve others and we want to speak about it when we're in the home we want to speak about it when we're on in our normal everyday life um, we want people to know that we are truly followers of Jesus right and so that I think fellowship for us helped us to understand what does that really look like you know um, being in community is the best way for us to grow right and to be um, opening the Word of God with others, watching them actually apply it to their lives, and us have going, oh, we could do that too. Or other people calling us um, under the carpet a little bit and saying, hey, I think you should probably walk a little bit differently. That That's what helped us grow into uh, kind of the disciples that we wanted to be and then we'll, how we want to be reproducible. We want to multiply that out with other people. I think for me, a lot of the joy in um, discipleship and just the experience of meeting with other people and reading God's Word together is that the Holy Spirit speaks to each one of us. And it's, it's not the same necessarily. What you need to hear from one passage is different than maybe what I need to hear and how we both apply it may be different. Um, but how incredible that God knows us so deeply and that he wants to, to speak to each of us as individuals because mm -hmm. we are. We're each his children. And just as those who have experienced being a parent, um, speak to each of your children differently. So he does to us too. And um, how life-giving that is. You know, we want to be disciples, right? And somebody that can be imitated. You know, and I think if you look at 1 Corinthians uh, 11, Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ, right? So first thing is, how do we become a disciple who is worth being reproduced? Um, and then understanding that the Bible, that the Word of God is, is enough. We learned how to do that here, and then we were able to go overseas, and we didn't have to think about another strategy or other, anything else. We just used the Bible as our, as our platform. Good morning. Man, I love Bobby. I love hearing how uh, the Lord has captured his heart, uh, come out in the quivers in his voice. Um, that is a man that's been changed by Jesus. Uh, and I'm blessed every time I hear him talk. Uh, hey, let's stand together and let's center our worship on Jesus this morning. Where the spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. And when we gather in his name, he's here with us. So let's step into the freedom that's ours this morning and worship. Join us. Sing it out.
Today's passage is Philippians 4, 1 through 5. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends. I plead with Yodia and I plead with Syneche to be of the same mind in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, my true companion, help these women since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. You may be seated. Lord Jesus, we are grateful that your presence is here. A promise right from your word that the Lord is near. Near in your coming again, we will be home soon and all will be right and remade. Near in your presence with us in the meantime. We don't wait alone. We're empowered by your presence and I thank you that even in our worship, in our time in the word, there is a sense that you are moving among us steal our spines, to encourage our hearts, to open our minds, and to make our lives more loving and gentle. We're opening ourselves up to you and your presence, asking you to teach and guide. Grateful that we will. Your people pray. It's in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. Good morning to you this morning. Hey, I want to start with a question that's not so rhetorical. So I want to actually ask you to go with me there, begin to make a, a mental list even as I ask this question. So if I asked you to list what you want most for the people that you love most, what would come to mind? What comes to mind? Maybe for you, you're already picturing your lifelong best friend. Maybe you're picturing your spouse or your children or your grandkids or, or a, a, a roommate. Make a mental list of the things that you want most for them to experience in life. And so when I think of my list, I think of my wife, my children, my grandchildren. I think of friends and staff that I work with. I think of our community group. And when those List that very short list comes to mind on what I want for them and to experience in their life. Well, probably the first thing that pops up for me is I want them to have a solid walk uh, with the Lord. But I also want that to spill over in healthy, growing, unified relationships for them. And I really, if you were to push me, I guess what I'm saying is I want them to experience a, a joy and a happiness that that is absolutely supernatural. Now listen, I know that the people I love have a lot of circumstances going on in their life. The people you love do as well. But push come to shove. These are the things that I want for the people I love most to experience. And guess what? The Apostle Paul, he's no different than us. He has an appetite for the same things in the people he loves. If so, you see Philippians chapter start with verse 1, therefore my, just look at the nouns he uses, my brothers and sisters, you whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends. This verse drips with the affection that you would have for a family member. 
or for very close, very dear friends. And remember, Philippians, all fall, we have seen, this is a very personal, very encouraging letter. You almost see the, actually the nouns tell us, you've got the the relationship of close friends, you've got almost the spiritual fatherhood he has towards them, even almost a grandfatherly affection to them when he calls them, you're my pride and joy. That's what he says when he says crown and joy. Paul is no different than us. As a result, he wants the same three things for them that we want for our loved ones. The only difference is ours is a want or a wish list. Paul takes those same three things and he, uh, well, he actualizes them, meaning he puts them into action. He turns the wish into commands. And so we see in Philippians chapter 4, five verses with four commands in those verses. Now, here's the interesting thing. Philippians as a whole only has 19 total commands. And so 20% of the activating verbs show up in these five little verses where Paul takes those same three wishes and he turns them from desires to pursuits, things that he commands them to experience. You start to see the first one in verse 1. The first command in verse 1 begins to say, Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, here's the command, stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends. Now listen, as Bible readers, you and I have been coached by people who are wiser than us that anytime you see a verse that begins with therefore, you stop and ask what it's, yeah, you've been coached the same way I have, right? And that's good advice. Even doubly sure on this one because he says, stand firm in the Lord in this way. So we've got some certain kind of way and a therefore that's taking firmness and pointing it to something else. What is the something else? And it goes back to the previous verse in chapter three that ends on the fact that our citizenship is in heaven. So Paul says, because you walk this planet knowing that you have a home in heaven, And secondly, you know that Jesus is coming back to not just be with you, but make you like him. Because you already know that's real about your life, stand firm in the Lord. Allow that standing in Christ to give you a solid walk with him. Because we know, as we said a couple weeks ago about our whole story. Chapter three told us the whole story of our real spiritual life, that we have this past uh, in Christ. Well, our past has been forgiven. We have this future in Christ that we will see see soon. And our future is secure. So when your past is forgiven, when your future is secure, your present becomes empowered. There's this very active, gritty, daily way. In fact, even the command, stand firm in the Lord, is done in the present active tense. In English, we would hear it this way. Stand, keep standing in the Lord. This present, empowering sense of life happens because we know who we are in Christ and are standing in him. And he says, if you really get a a grip on that, it'll start to change the way you do earthly life. And so the command in verse 1 spills next into a command in verse 2. In verse 2 and 3 says, I plead with Iodia and I plead with Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. That's the command. Yes, 
And I ask you, my true companion, my hunch here is he's talking to one of the elders who would have been receiving this letter. I ask you, my true companion, to help these women since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers whose names are in the book of life. Here's this, notice the movement. In verse one, he said, you got this heavenly standing, this heavenly vision of your life. Now in verse two, he's talking about your earthly relationships. And don't you see how they're very connected in his mind? He says, if you're gonna be a follower of Jesus, it'll show up on earth. And it'll show up in the way we relate to one another. Our walks with Jesus always show up in daily life. So spiritual relationship with Jesus is intimately connected to our personal relationships with one another. The vision of the Christian life from Jesus through the apostles, the entire scriptures tell us that you cannot decouple the horizontal and the vertical access. Your vertical relationship with Jesus is forever bonded and wed to your horizontal relationship with other people. And as we stand firm in the Lord, it spills over into these healthy relationships. And here Paul mentions the very first problem. We've been through the whole letter so far, and no specific issues have been raised with the Philippian church until now. And we see that there's this conflict between two women, Yodia and Syntyche. They're Greek names. In English, this is what we would hear. We would hear success and lucky. So sister success and sister lucky are kind of at odds with each other right now. Now, let's just go with what we know. We don't know why they're at odds, but what we know is these two women are well-known to Paul, well-known enough that he calls them by first name, well-known enough that he has some history and some track record with them in ministry. In fact, I think it's clear in this text that these are two spiritual leaders in the body. They're women of influence in the body. Paul actually believes and calls them comrades in the gospel. He says, I contended. In other words, I, I fought alongside these women as we advanced the cause of the gospel together in Philippi. But we also know that they're in conflict, what Paul tells us. But he doesn't tell us what they're in conflict about, does he? And that might be interesting. It tells us that the issue is not so core that it should divide these women, these leaders, or even divide the church at large. Clearly, the issue is important to success and lucky. They feel strongly enough about it that they've kind of broken relationship over it. But Paul is kind of bringing them back together. And in this situation, he gives no opinion who's, of who's right and who's wrong. In fact, what I notice in here is the command is given to both women. Don't you see that? Yodia gets the command and Syntyche gets the command. He urges both women to be of the same mind and to resolve the conflict. And I think that's pretty hugely important to us. Our re-engage ministry, which is, by the way, our marriage ministry that runs for 16 weeks each semester, on week one, they start with a saying and they repeat it about every month. And the saying goes like this. What you're gonna do in this marriage ministry for the next six weeks, you're gonna draw a circle around yourself and then you're going to get busy on working on everybody in the circle. That's Paul to Yodia and Syntyche. He's putting the command out to both of those women. We don't know who's to blame in the conflict. We just know they're both commanded to own the solution. Application for me, 
When I'm in conflict with the people I love, maybe it's somebody very close to me. Let's say I'm in conflict with a wife, and since I only have one, you might guess who that is. He's saying, Mark, what I want you to do is approach this like you want the solution rather than you're just trying to believe who's the problem. And you're going to work towards that solution and see unity rebuilt. First, the other thing I see in there is that Paul has faith in these two women that they're going to work it out. I don't, do you get the sense that he's wringing his hands? Oh, I hope this works out. Doesn't split the church over there. No, he has faith in these two women, and he has faith in the larger church that they're going to come together and work this out, which tells me, again, if you're at an impasse right now, maybe you're at an impasse with your spouse, maybe it is a family member, maybe it's an adult parent, uh, uh, an adult child, and things just, you've tried to come to the solution, you can't get there. Wisdom says you do what Paul promotes here. You pull the others in with you. You get help from your church body. Maybe the first thing, if you're at that impasse, is you would be the one with enough courage and enough humility to go to your community group and say, we, we need some help in our marriage. We're stuck on an issue. Or I've got an issue going on with an adult child right now that I could use prayer and encouragement on. Maybe you would come to one of our church staff or even our counseling ministry. This is the most reproduced photograph on the planet right now. Familiar to you, I'm sure. It's actually the flag raising at the Battle of Iwo Jima in February 1945. I think it's super appropriate to show on this Veterans Day weekend. Iwo Jima was one of the bloodiest battles of any war. If you're a history lover, you know that the island of Iwo Jima was strategic, actually critical for the United States to take if we were going to finally be able to end the war or World War II, with Japan. I'll spare you all the details because I like to geek out on this stuff, but the terrain was very rugged. No foxholes could be dug. The uh, overwhelming odds of the Japanese soldiers required uh, 800 ships filled with 110,000 Marines whose average age was 17 and a half to storm that beach under the hail fire of bullets and mortar fire and get all the way to the top of Mount Suribachi and take the island. That flag was not raised after the victory. That flag was raised during the heat of the battle. It was raised on Suribachi through a machine gun fire, and a man named James Bradley, after his father had passed, was going through his dad's belongings only to find in a box a copy of this photograph, and a letter thanking him for being one of the flag raisers. He knew nothing of his dad's story during the battle. And it set him off on a passion to find out more about his father and these other five men, six flag raisers. He wrote a book called Flags of Our Fathers. It's turned into a movie. Movie, not so much. Book, so much. You, if you read that book, will never find a story of six more different human beings bonded together. In there, you see a cowboy from South Texas and a Native American from Arizona. You see a hillbilly from West Virginia and a Yankee from New Hampshire. You see a shoe salesman from Wisconsin and a Czechoslovakian immigrant. 
none of those men would sign up to be in a men's accountability group with each other ever. And yet, I think that's the best picture of unity I've ever seen captured. Why? Because those men have come together in a common battle, having already pledged allegiance to a common banner. And they move together to see that banner raised. And men and women, that's the command Paul is given to Yodius and Tiki. That is the command he gives to you and to me. We believe there is a banner bigger than us, bigger than my preferences and opinions in life. And it's the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we've already pledged allegiance to him. And so we lean in together to see that banner raised. And when that happens, that kind of unity in the body happens, it starts to spill over to the broader community we live in. Because verse 5 spills out, saying, in fact, let your gentleness be evident, now not just to the body of Christ, but to all, all in Philippi, all, even the people of the other tribe, the other opinion, the other worldview, the other religion, the ones who even opposed them and persecuted them. Let them be evident to all. The Lord is near. So our spiritual walk spills over to relationship with all people. We are gentle-spirited. That's actually the word for gentleness here. Gentle-spirited. You know this word is such a big deal in the New Testament, you only see it three times? James uses this word, gentle-spirited, to describe the wisdom that comes from God. He says you're going to know it sounds like God if it's gentle-spirited. If it's barking at you, it might be somebody who's evangelistically religious, but it's not the wisdom of God. The wisdom of God is gentle-spirited, he says. Peter says, you know you have a good boss if they're gentle-spirited. Paul says, you know you have a possible elder if they're gentle-spirited. The only other time this comes up is requirements for elders in 1 Timothy and in Titus. An elder must live with gentle-spiritedness. Hey, we're in an elder nominating process right now as a church. And as you read through those requirements in what Titus and in 1 Timothy, you will see gentle spirited in there. And as, as God has put some, some men in your mind, you think, boy, they, they seem to match this description, nominate them. Knowing that gentle spiritedness is absolutely critical. We know that's important because we know all too well that a feisty leader who just wants to start a fight all the time, well, all that does is create a culture of chaos and disunity. Those of us on our staff team work with some great examples of gentle-spirited leaders, both men and women I get the chance to work with. One of the men that I find who exhibits this the most, in my opinion, is Abel Schaefer. Have you ever met a more disarming man than Abel Schaefer? Now, listen, don't dumb it down and just say he's nice. I've met nice people who check out my groceries. That doesn't mean I would follow them with my life. Gentle-spirited is different. It's a disarming that takes us to something bigger. And I think it's one of the reasons we enjoy such a high-octane amount of unity here. I've never been in a church this large that has such relatively little drama. Is that not fun or what? We know that if you're going to raise, be raised in a house filled with drama, that's just, woo, you get a lot of hobbies outside the home because it's hard to get along inside the home. But when this household of God lives with 
very little drama and enjoys unity, usually that means that there are men and women that we're following, we're exhibiting gentle spiritedness. And it spills over to a joy factor. Look at the one verse we haven't seen yet in this command. I skipped past it. Verse four, rejoice in the Lord always. He says, in case your memory is short, I'll say it again, but shorten it for you. Rejoice. We kind of get his point, two commands back to back, both of them short and punchy, all wrapped around this joy factor or happiness factor in life. In fact, their day is no different than our day. The Greek philosophers of their day, Aristotle called happiness the greatest good. There's a philosopher, and I believe he's still with us. It hasn't gone on to be with the Lord. He was the head of the Boston College uh, Department of Philosophy. His name is Dr. Peter Kreeft. Uh, Kreeft is a strong believer. Kreeft was once famous for saying, people often say, what good is money? It can't buy you happiness. But I've never heard anybody say, what good is happiness? It can't buy you money. Because he knows that one of those is most cherished by us. And it's not money. It's happiness. We know it because our own founding documents said that we get up in the morning as a country and live in hot pursuit of life, liberty, and happiness. And here Paul commands us to rejoice. In fact, this is actually the second and third time he's commanded us to rejoice. The first time was in Philippians chapter 3, verse 1. He says, rejoice in the Lord always, comma, I'm saying this because this is big time protection for you if you'll choose joy. He says it's a safeguard for you if you rejoice. It was Mother Teresa who once said that joy is strength. She's so right. I wonder if she knew how she was on the cutting edge tip of the spear of even uh, neuropsychiatry. Because those who understand brain development know something that they call joy strength, where the prefrontal cortex in an infant is the part of the brain that is being developed. By the way, you know somebody has a strong, healthy prefrontal cortex if they can regulate their own emotions. Well, that develops in the first year of life through bonding from child to parent and joy factor going up in that infant, and it becomes a safeguard for them the rest of their life, joy strength. Paul's right. It's a protection for us. And here he repeatedly commands us to rejoice. And here's the hard one. Always. And that sounds impossible. In fact, some would tell you that's not healthy. Always? Always makes sense if we'll take the word of God as it comes to us. Because the command is not rejoice always. In fact, the command is not rejoice over everything always. The command is rejoice in the Lord always. And that in the Lord makes all the difference. See, choosing joy is not denying reality because there is plenty in life that brings grief, isn't there? We hurt over the losses we suffer and we suffer over the hurts of others. We know that grief is a good and right response to the losses and pains of life. But healthy people know that grief and joy can reside in the same human heart at the same time. One does not take away the other. One makes the other bearable. 
doable, even thrivable. Joy becomes a strength for us. Choosing joy is not denying reality. Choosing joy is simply seeing a bigger reality as well. In other words, when you choose joy, you are not shutting your eyes to pain. You are opening your eyes to bigger truths that are over and under and around that pain. What kind of bigger truths? You are choosing to see the temporal in light of the eternal. You're choosing to see our pain in light of God's promise. I have a brother that I'm looking at right now who's walked through that in the, in the pain of losing his wife. And yet he's one of the most joyful men I know with staying power. Rejoice always. It's actually good and needed and reasonable command when we see that all of the events of our life fit in that whole story of salvation. Remember, our past our present, our future. All of that is in Christ. And so now our joy always makes sense if it's in the Lord. There's so much we could say on joy. In fact, we could do a whole series. That would be fun to do a four-part series on joy. Maybe that would be a fun thing to do in the next few months or so. But could I do some cliff notes? How about a little theology of joy? And you're like, well, that makes joy boring right there. No, theology just means seeing life from God's vision. So how about God's vision of joy that can work in the mind and the heart and change us? The first thing we've got to know foundationally is that God is the most joyful person in the universe. This is such a foundational building block. Nehemiah says it's the joy of the Lord that's our strength. In other words, God, his happiness becomes our joy strength. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Yahweh, one, is a unity of relationships spilling over in joy. Creation is an overflow of his joy in making human beings. Salvation is an overflow of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit's joy in remaking human beings. He is the happiest being in the universe. Do you believe that? When you think of God this morning, he is not needy. He is not anxious. Over the next two weeks, we'll look at Philippians chapter four, one passage talking about anxiety and peace and another one talking about neediness and contentment. God is not those, but he wants to meet us in our needs and anxieties and offer us his joy. And as such, God desires our joy and God actually takes joy in us Zephaniah 3, verse 17, gives us this picture of God that kind of blows our mind and it enlarges our heart at the exact same time. It says this as a verse, the Lord your God is with you. He takes great delight in you. He rejoices over you with singing. When you see God look at you right now, listen, don't just see him, listen. Do you hear the sound? It's his joy over you, making you, remaking you, creating you, recreating you in Christ, unifying you with him forever because his delight is that much. Back to joy strength. Neuroscience tells us that an infant's brain develops with joy strength when, 
quote, they sense someone is glad to be with them. So we had a little visit from my 10-month-old granddaughter from Tulsa this weekend. Yes, she brought her parents, but she's at that age where she's smiling back as you smile at her. When she senses that someone's taking delight in her presence, she responds with joy, freeze. Zephaniah 3.17, he rejoices over you with singing. He takes delight in you. You feel the joy bubble up? Oh, that glorifies him. He has never once said, oh, don't you get the big head and think you're all that. He says, you're that. You're mine. Hear my joy over you and lean into it and reflect that joy back in the Lord. Joy is produced when we get the sense that someone is glad to be with me. Dr. Alan Shore says, who's not a Christian at UCLA, and God is our somebody. He is glad to be with us. And as a result, real joy is rooted in a person, not in a circumstance. That's what Philippians 4 is teaching us. This is why Paul's command is so reasonable. Remember, he says, rejoice in the Lord always. So because our joy is rooted in the faithfulness of Jesus Christ, not in the fickleness of our circumstances, the presence and power of Jesus is consistent. The love and faithfulness of Jesus is constant. So guess what else can be consistent and constant? Our joy. It's rooted in him, and he's consistent and constant. And therefore, real joy can abide in us as we abide in Christ. This is actually how we experience joy. We don't conjure it up. We lean into him, or we relate closely or draw near to him. And as we draw near to him, we are finding our life in the Lord, and that's where our joy is experienced. The command, rejoice in the Lord always, is really, in essence, a command to, to choose joy every day. The late Henry Nowen said it this way, joy does not simply happen to us. We're adults, we know that. Life happens to us. We have to choose joy and keep choosing it every day. It is a choice based on the knowledge that we belong to God and have found in God our refuge and our safety and that nothing, not even death, not even the death of a loved one can take God away from us. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say, rejoice. When our five kids were little, school-aged, you know, before driving age, I had the privilege of driving them to school every morning uh, until, uh, unless I was out of town or uh, until they got a driver's license. You know, I, I kind of miss those days. I don't miss car rider line per se. You know that. Kids could be cranky and adults could be mean. Uh, by the way, I'm not telling you anything you know. You're about to experience car rider line in a few minutes. Like you've been there. But here's what car rider, car rider line gave me each and every day. About 15 uninterrupted minutes with them. 
we'd have this little routine that as soon as we were pulling into the long, slow drop-off line at a school, I'd say, let me pray over your day. And I would say a short prayer over their day. And then I would always finish the prayer with this verse. You've seen it. Psalm 118, verse 24. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad with it, although we reworded it in our family. We would say this. Finish the prayer, and I'd say, Lord, because you made today, we will, and both me and the children would echo back in one voice, choose joy. Now, they didn't say it as enthusiastically as Dad said it in the driver's seat. They sounded a little more like Eeyore, but it didn't make the truth any less true. They're just normal, and they don't like 7.20 in the morning in school. Who does? But it doesn't make truth less true. This is the day he made. We can choose joy because we know that God is in this day with us. God is over this day. We choose joy because God is with us this day. We choose joy because God's for us this day. We choose joy because God will use this very day for our good and for his glory. Yes, we choose joy. Would you stand with your amen? Would we sing knowing that we're responding to the God who rejoices over us and is for us and with us and in us?
Will you give us one more song? One more song of joy? Hey, this song gets kind of siloed to a season, usually, and I'm going to bust it out a little early this year. So, any guesses? You know exactly what it is. I'm not even going to pretend. Uh, by the way, you guys did a little better than first service continuing the clap through the song. It always just kind of slowly dies out. Uh, joy to the world. It, it, I, I hate that these songs get stuck in Christmas season because it's true today. It's true. And it's good news. And we can celebrate it together today. So let's do it.
Amen. Amen. Thank you, Jesus, that you are with us. God, that we carry a joy in us that, that is undefeatable. It's resilient. We can't lose it. As long as we're following you, as long as we're looking to you, as long as we're remembering the bigger picture, God, thank you for that word this morning. God, help us to walk in that. Holy Spirit, help us to walk in the knowledge that you're the most joyful being in the whole universe and that you are on our side. We have nothing to fear. We can walk in that. God, may our lives just just, just overflow with the fruit of the Spirit as we remember who you are and what you've done and who we are in light of that. Spirit, empower us to live lives of joy this week. We love you. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. Hey, if you need prayer this morning, like every morning, uh, we've got people available for you. Um, before you walk out that door, hold on, hold on. I want to I wanna, I wanna read this over here. I want to bless you. Will you just receive this this morning? Maybe just stand with your, your hands open like this, just, just like this. To him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ, our Lord, before all ages, now and forevermore. Amen. We love you, fellowship. Go in peace.